basically you want to get them going low and slow in the mountains with a heavy load, you know, underneath them. You want to make sure they can handle that. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and you get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Hey, welcome back helicopter fans everywhere. I'm pumped again to be able to bring you another chat with someone that has a a heap of experience in the industry. We'll get to hear from John Harris about the US Forestry Service and their aviation ops uh, shortly. First though, how was your week? What did you get up to? Look, I did something new this week. I was an instructor on a helicopter landing officer course over two days. I had a lot of fun doing it and it really drives home the amount of things and information that many of us take for granted when we've been around helicopters for a while. The course covered a heap of things. Some of the things were helipad design and uh, clearance areas, principles of flight, fuel handling and testing, weather, radio comms, passenger briefings and passenger loading, emergency response plans, firefighting, and heliport safety. It was a you know, great refresher for me having to, to teach all that. And hopefully the guys, Dave, Martin, and Reggie, uh, the guys on the course, get a chance to put all that into action as soon in their own careers. Really interesting guys, those three. So Dave had a, a safety management uh, background. Uh, Reggie was in the US Air Force as ground support for F-15s, F-16s, and KC-135s, and then uh, HH-60s. And he now operates a UAV doing mosquito spraying here in Australia. And Martin has a, a combat medic background. He's worked with aviation operations in Sudan and Afghanistan for different contractors. So look, I'm going to try and tee Martin up to see if he can come on the show as he has some really interesting stories about his work there on different Russian airframes and the MI-26. It's one very big helicopter. If you're interested in the HLO course, then you can check out more details over at assetaviation.com and Matt is the guy to contact there. All right, question of the week for you guys. For those of you with commercial licenses, how long was the ground trap, so the ground questionnaire, and how long was the flying part of your CPL test? So how long was the, the ground questioning and then how long was the actual flight test? So you can let me know on Twitter. The show handle there is at Rotary Wing Show or on Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash Rotary Wing Show. And also include what country you did your, your test in. So I'll share those results with you in a, a future episode. Uh, now, don't forget, okay, I know that uh, you're probably driving or away from the computer, but next time you are, are on, then uh, track the show down. And look, same thing with the episode comments. Hit the website and go back to an episode that you uh, really enjoyed or got something from and leave a comment at the, the bottom of the page or ask a question. We always get those guests back in to answer those questions. If you're into reading, then on the website, you'll also find a PDF download of the top helicopter books as voted by you guys as uh, show listeners. And I might have to run another poll later this year now that we've got a bigger audience and see if there's any new additions for that list of books. So that's over at rotarywingshow.com. So John Harris is a US Forestry Service helicopter inspector pilot. He's based in Montana. And a shout out to Andre Hutchings, another past guest, for hooking me up with John. And I think you'll really enjoy this interview. Not only do we talk US Forestry Service, but John has flown Chinooks, S61s, and sky cranes amongst you know a bunch of other things and he also has some great advice for aircrew looking to you know get better and improve their skills and uh, how they operate the helicopter and also for new pilots trying to break into the industry here's john John Harrison, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, look, I'm really looking forward to this chat because we're going to be talking a whole heap of stuff about, uh, you know, not only your background as a sort of utility uh, pilot, but also about the US uh, Forestry Service. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, John, where are you at the moment? You're in Montana. Can you sort of describe the location, where it is, and and sort of when you look out your window, uh, what do you see and what do you see when you go flying? Oh, you betcha. Well, I'm in uh, western Montana, about central western Montana, in the mountain part 
And um, it's pretty much the Rocky Mountain chain through here. So like right now, if I look out my window, I have, uh, I'm in the Bitterroot Valley. So I look out and I'm between the Bitterroot Mountains and the Sapphire Mountains. So the valley runs north-south. And um, so there are more sharp snow-covered mountains to the west and more rounding, not so much snow to the east. So it's a very beautiful setting here. Yeah, I just had a quick look again because you know geography of the the U.S. is not brilliant. But for folks who think about the uh, the, the northern border of of the U.S. and then uh, Montana is kind of in the middle and to the left a little bit, so it's pretty remote as far as you know wilderness and national parks go. Like if you throw Montana national parks into the Google image search, you see these you know beautiful crystal clear lakes and pictures of grizzly bears and elks and, and mountains and things like that. So uh, yeah, is it really that sort of wilderness type feel to it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can, uh, 20 minutes from the house, you can just be lost in the wilderness. Um, like you said, there's a lot of beautiful lakes, pristine areas. We have a lot of wilderness areas. Um, and the wilderness areas tend to have the grizzly bears in them. And, but the elk, you can see them down here in the valley as you drive in. I have deer in the yard. It's not uncommon to see bear, you know, more uncommon to see mountain lion, but you'll see them occasionally, you know, bighorn sheep, mountain goat. Uh, especially when you're flying over the mountains. In the elevation in some of the mountains, you know, uh, I'd say the average, you know, you're working five to 8,000 feet on an average, but, you know, they run upwards of, you know, 10,000 feet easy. And I'm guessing cold in winter? What, what sort of temperature extremes do you get? Actually, believe it or not, it's not too bad here. I grew up on the East Coast uh, in upstate New York where it was very cold extreme winters. But here, believe it or not, the area I live in is Missoula, and it's kind of a banana belt of Montana. If you go to eastern Montana, it's cold because the Chinook winds come out of Canada, and the Rocky Mountain and Continental Divide keeps it out to the east. But on the west side, we actually have more milder temperatures, and um, I haven't even – I think I've shoveled the driveway once this year. We don't get a lot of snow, and if we do, it's not here very long. It goes away. I'd say we average – in the wintertime, um, 23 degrees, 23 to 25 degrees Celsius. In the summertime, about 90 degrees Celsius. Uh, so it's it's actually fairly moderate. It's not bad at all. Yeah, I think that was Fahrenheit. Because <laughs> 90 degrees Celsius be uh, be cooking. All right, John, let's, I guess, as far as attacking this interview, obviously we're going to talk about the uh, forestry service, but let's talk about how you got to the, to the current position, and then now uh, we can talk a bit about um, some of the roles there. So what was your, like, where did you grow up? What, what part of the country um, did you grow up in, and, and sort of what was your first experience with helicopters? Well, I grew up um, in uh, upstate New York, and when I say upstate, I mean up, up near the Canadian border in the Adirondack Mountains, real rural area, and... Um, so I was a country boy, and then I went to Potsdam State University. That's where I met my wife, and she was from Long Island, the city area. And um, I was going through college, and I, you know, I never really wanted to fly. Um, I never really thought about it, but I was going to college as, as a geology major, and I needed to get experience in my field. So my advisor says, "Well, he went in the army and got experience." So I'm like, "Okay, I'll go talk to an army recruiter." I talked to him. And the Army recruiter, they said, oh, yeah, you can get in and finish school while you're in the Army. And, you know, we'll put you in the petroleum because I want to be a petroleum geologist. But uh, it all changed. Once I got in the Army, I ended up going to a combat heavy engineer unit enlisted working in a motor pool and an uh, engineering company. So I ended up being a truck mechanic, generator mechanic, tool rooms clerk, you know, everything. And then... Uh, put me in the petroleum field, they assigned me a fuel truck that I was in charge of. So that kept me in the petroleum field. Um, so I, I didn't get my education that I wanted to. There's only four mechanics and 216 vehicles to maintain, and we worked a lot. So they denied me to go to college. So I saw these warrant officers walking around, and they were treated quite well. So I thought I'd, I'd put in for warrant officer school, but the only one I was qualified for, as a an enlisted person, I was E4, and you had to be a sergeant or E5 to apply for any other warrant position except flight school. So that was my intro to going to flight school and wanting to be a pilot was to, uh, you know, get out of where I was. It was kind of unusual. And yeah. I put in the first time, and I got accepted the first time. And most of the guys in my flight class, they put in three or four times before they got accepted. But somehow I got accepted the first time, and off I went to flight school in the Army. 
Excellent. And so your normal sort of, um, I don't know, was it, was it Fort Rucker, normal sort of program through the U.S. training? Yep, I went to uh, Fort Rucker. I went through Warrant Officer Candidate School and then into flight school. Um, I went in, uh, I believe it was 19, 1987 is when I went into flight school. And then um, graduated in November of 1988 from flight school as a UH-1 pilot. And then went up to uh, Fort Drum, New York. So I was only three hours from my home up there. And then I flew Hueys for a couple of years, and um, I wanted to get into more complex aircraft, so I applied for a Chinook qualification course, and they accepted me. And so in uh, 19, about 1990, late 1990, I went to uh, Fort Rucker back again for a Chinook qualification course, qualified in that. Then I went to um, ALSI Aviation Support Equipment course and became an ALSI officer. And then off to Korea for unaccompanied tour for 13 months. And then uh, that's when the first desert storm was going on. And so they stopped lost me from going uh, anywhere. So I got stuck in Korea until um, they were letting people move around. And then from there, I went to Savannah, Georgia, and finished up my career in the Army as a Chinook uh, you know, pilot, which I also was in the uh, fleet Chinooks in Korea, too. And then... Uh, uh, let's see, 1993, I got out of the Army from Savannah, Georgia, and I went out to Montana where my dad had lived. He moved here in 1977, so I went out to visit him, fell in love with Montana, and I'd been all over the place. And um, so I went back to my wife and kids. I went out, came out to Montana hunting in my dad's place, so I went back and showed them pictures and said, it's beautiful, and asked the Army if I can get out, and they said, yeah, you can, you can get out your career status, so you have no commitment so I put in paperwork a few months later. I was out in April of 93 and went to work for my dad driving truck, operating heavy equipment. And I joined the Montana National Guard flying Cobras. But that didn't last very long, about 10 months, because I ended up, I didn't like working for my dad too much. Working for family members probably is not the best. So I uh, ended up getting a job, a buddy of mine from the Army, worked at Columbia, and he helped me get a job at Columbia Helicopters. So I went to work for them. And back then we were logging and there was no time off. So I hired on as a co-pilot with no time off. So my wife and kids would just travel with me on the road. We lived in a small RV with two dogs, two boys, and my wife and I in a 27-foot 1967 RV. And we traveled from logging job to logging job. And because of that, I didn't have any time off to go fulfill my uh, guard duties. So um, I ended up, after 10 months, leaving the guard and just worked primarily for Columbia. And uh, so that's, pretty, that's pretty amazing. Let's, if we just go back to that uh, that life on the road yeah, there. So, is that a common? And uh, again, I'm looking forward. I've got an interview hopefully coming up with uh, Chris, who's the, the chief pilot at um, at Columbia as well. So that'd be interesting. But that oh, uh, Chris Gage. yeah, yeah. So hopefully I'll organise mm-hmm. that in the next next week or two. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so back on that. Like again, it's a pretty unique company. The fact that they're flying with civilian sort of Chinooks. Are many of the pilots there? Were they pilots you'd sort of flown with in the in the army, or were they sort of come through different backgrounds? Well, they come from different backgrounds. When I first hired on with Columbia, um, they uh, I would say it was about fifty fifty on army pilots compared to civilian pilots. And now I would say it's probably more. Uh, when I left, I left Columbia in 2006. I would say it was more civilian pilots than army pilots. But you know, it's at times are different now, you know, than they were back then. And um, so you got hired on as a co-pilot, no matter what your background. Like I was a Chinook captain with the army, but Columbia didn't care about your background at all. Um, you know, everyone started as a co-pilot, and then you flew light ships, uh, 500s, 12Es. Uh, 12Es, and then you supported the logging jobs. And then, yeah, it was just life on the road. You would go from one logging job to another job, no time off. You would, uh, you know, normally you'd get work six days a week. You'd get a seventh day off, depending on weather. If you end up with a lot of weather days during the week, you still went to work, but you didn't fly much. Then you'd end up having to work through the weekend. We tried to rotate pilots where you could get two days off and some guys could maybe get home. Uh, and then times changed, and um, they had a bunch of pilots quit because other logging companies were offering time off. So a bunch of them quit and moved on, and so that left openings for people like me that had just hired on. Because uh, it used to take a co-pilot to transition from co-pilot to the left seat of a BB-107 or like CH-46 
about three to four years, sometimes five years. And from the time I hired on until I was checked out in the BV-107 was um, 13 months. So it was a pretty quick transition. But while you're flying light ships, you're, you're landing out in the middle of the mountains, all types of density altitudes, flying chokers, uh, flying cutters in and out of the woods and loggers in and out of the woods. Um, so you get pretty good at high altitude flying. You're landing on logs, just cut out little hole openings in the middle of the forest and dropping people off and picking them up. So when the weather was too bad for the big ship to fly, then they would send the light ship out to go pick up all the people. Uh, kind of a little weird because you weren't even high up our equipment, but the big ships were. But the uh, little ship was the weather bird. So you'd go out and test the waters for the, uh, the big ship. And uh, it was exciting. But then we got a break schedule, which made life a lot better. And then my family went back home, living at our home in Montana. And I just traveled uh, from job to job and I would go home. Initially it started, uh, you work four weeks on, you get a week off and then you went to, then it went to three weeks on one week off, then eventually two weeks on one week off. And, uh, now the majority of the companies are all two weeks on two weeks off and even time off schedule. So that's a much better way of life. So was um, that your first experience then, with, um, uh, long lining then? Was you, or did yeah, that was it? my first experience. With long line, I flew, you know, sling missions with the Army, with the Chinook, but never a long line, you know, 150, 200 foot long line. And that was my first. You start in the light ship in the 500 or 12E, and then you'd move up to the big ship. All right. And just before we leave that one, and, and so how long were you actually on the road in the caravan with the family for? Oh, several years. Probably my first five years, six years with Columbia, and I did 13 years with Columbia. Wow. And, you know, before me, it was like that for you know, the guys for many years, you know, back into the 70s, late 70s, till the 90s, they were no time off. So it was pretty rough uh, logging. Sometimes you lived in just camps with a generator in the middle of the woods, and uh, it was like a bunch of gypsies, all the wives, and he became like a family with all the loggers. We'd all travel together, we'd eat together at night, we'd play volleyball together. You know, if we had a weather day, we'd all go to the bar drinking together. The kids all played together out in the RV parks. So it was nice in a way, but it was it was much better to come home and have a home to come home to and, you know, have the wife and kids stable instead of, because we used to have to homeschool our kids or some people would put their kids in school for, you know, two or three months while we did a job. John, you spoke about the logging that Columbia did. What sort of other operations did you do with Columbia? Well, besides logging, we did, of course, firefighting here in the United States. And um, we did construction work, power line work, uh, water flumes, you know, infrastructure stuff, uh, infrastructure stuff. And then we also did a lot of overseas work, like in Ecuador, uh, Papua New Guinea, working for oil companies, moving oil rigs over the jungles. And this is obviously, you folks don't know this, but the second time we're trying to record this, but first time around you were talking about the uh, the fences and the accommodations at some of these sites that they're pretty austere and, you know, not particularly uh, five-star accommodation. No, um, the accommodations aren't always the best in the jungle. You live on a, a compound, basically a camp with a fence around it, and depending on the camp, you uh, more than likely have armed guards. And uh, your room's normally about an eight foot by eight foot and you share a bathroom. Then you'll have a bed, oh, a dresser, um, a desk, or a nightstand, and uh, a closet, and an air conditioner or a fan. And uh, so basically you go to work for 28 days. You live on this compound. You only fly off of it, and you fly back to it every day most time. And um, so it's almost, it's almost more like being in prison than, you know, you don't get to tour and look at the other part of the countries and stuff. So you do that 28 days and then you fly home. Once you've done 28 days in the jungle, you're ready to go home for 28 days. I was going to say, the things we do for the, uh, the privilege of flying helicopters. Yeah, and the food's not always the greatest either. They um, they serve guinea pig on a stick. Uh, <laughs> I've seen stomach. A lot of it's more of what, um, more the cuisine for the native people than and what we're accustomed to. And it's the majority of them. We're a small part. There may be, you know, 20 or 30, you know, uh, people where we're, you know, we're not native to them. And uh, and the rest on the camp, you know, three or 400 people could be all the local people or native people that they bring in from Ecuador or from Papua New Guinea from all over. 
and so they you know they're catered to them of course and not us so sometimes you have to bring your own food with you you know in your little kitty bag some food there's no drinking at all camp dry camp and what would be some of the the more interesting things you've uh, you've carried so obviously you know drilling rigs and things like that in those sites but uh, has it been you know some offbeat type jobs I flew the National Christmas tree, I think, back in 98 or something. Uh, I flew it out of the woods in North Carolina and down to a truck that would parade around the United States. And then it ends up in Washington, D.C. And uh, so Lake got the president and the first lady turned on the lights for And uh, what else? And uh, for Columbia, that was probably the most... Uh, prestigious load ever flew. Most time, you know, I mean, I flew a lot of expensive loads, but, um, you know, some components on that oil rig are over a million dollars for one load. You're flying the value of them. Uh, In the Army, I flew for uh, support for President Bush Sr. in Korea for three days, and then uh, also flew Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders, which was kind of nice. They were the best smelling cargo I've ever flown. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Yeah. All right. So after the Columbia, um, where'd you go there, or what was the, uh, the, the the sort of the kicker to leave uh, Columbia? Well, Columbia, Columbia used to be a, a small company atmosphere, you know, and they got they got pretty big, um, and we became more of a number. It wasn't so personal anymore. It was more big business, and you know, I kind of like working for the smaller companies where you know you. It's more personal. It's not a, a business proposition. And so um, some friends of mine worked for Carson and told me I'd like Carson if I wanted to come over and fly for Carson. So that's what I did. I left Columbia in 2006. I think it was May of 2006 and went over to Carson Helicopters as a line pilot and started flying for them, doing pretty much the same thing, firefighting, construction, logging, didn't do any overseas oil patch work with uh, Carson, but I did uh, overseas firefighting in Australia, over in um, Perth, Australia. And where was Carson Perth. Helicopters based? They were based out of Grants Pass, Oregon. So about three and a half hour drive south of Columbia, where Columbia was located. So uh, a lot of your large helicopter companies are along that I-5, Interstate 5 corridor, going north and south through um Washington, Oregon, and California. You find a lot of them right along that. Yeah, line. I can't believe how many um, how many cali- how many helicopter companies there are in California. When I'm looking around online on Facebook and things like that, it's just uh, it sounds like they're all parked next to each other. Mm-hmm. So the Carson Helicopters, um, they're really big on the on the S61, or you know, probably most folks would know it as a, like a Sea King type airframe. Was that all they had, or was it just a, a specialty of theirs? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Frank Carson specialized in the. In the F-61, we had, uh, you know, different models. We had long models, short models, um, A models, uh, and models. And so, um, but that was his pretty much his, his uh, forte that he worked in. He, he loved the 61. Um, of course, many years earlier, he started with other things in the 61, 58Ts. When I came on, they had only, only 61s. I haven't really seen much of it. Like you know, I'm used to the the Navy, uh, Australian Navy Sea King in that sort of shape, and I guess what you see from the, the Brits and that. But uh, there on the website, there's like there's a like a, a stretched version. And it's just massive. It's the same Sea King frame, but the the cockpit or the cabin just keeps going. So is that the oh. what's, what's that version? Oh, you mean on the '61, the long cabin? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a huge cabin. Yeah, it is quite long. I can't remember the dimensions. I think it's six. I think it's 67 feet long, but I can't remember exactly. It's been quite a few years since I've been in them. That's a, uh, yeah, is that a stretch model? I believe that would be the long version, yeah. And then the, if I remember right, I think it had 48 inches. A short model would have 48 inches taken out of it. And that would be forward of the mast. So it was right behind the cockpit. They would take uh, 48 inches out. But, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty long. It's You know, that's the nice thing about heavies. Is you you know you can always take whatever you wanted with you like the uh, you know the VV107s and the Chinooks that Columbia had. I mean you could take anything you wanted with you, and uh, you had lots of room to stretch out and relax. Same with 61. It was it was comfortable, real comfortable to fly. I was going to ask this later, but I'll ask it now because it ties in. You know, what's the the smallest helicopter you've flown? Do you actually have any piston time? 
I do. When I was in the Army, I trained on what they really call TH-55s, which I believe are uh, 269s, I believe. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. Um, big version. So I got, I have about 60 hours in those. And that was back, you know, back in 88, probably 87, 88, I did that. And then I flew um, 12 E's, thermally 12 E's at Columbia and 500 D models, oh, C models also. But I probably, I probably only got, you know, in light and mediums, maybe uh, 1,200 hours of flight time in those. But I, I pretty much, and mostly in heavies, um, my whole career. I started in Chinooks in 1990, I believe it was. And uh, just for that short stamp of Columbia, for about seven months or so, I flew light ships. Yep. And the rest of the time, I've pretty much been in heavies the whole time. All right, and after um, Carson was looking at LinkedIn here, so you then shifted to Ericsson, which is a, another another heavy company. So, yeah, yeah, was there anything else to anything stand out from Carson that you wanted to talk about before we moved on? Um, well, Carson, you know, uh, at the time before they went down, it was a it was a good company to work for. Uh, you were treated really well and paid very well, and I was a line pilot, and then I uh, became a 135 check airman there. And also a chief pilot a few months before that fatal accident of Iron 44. So I'd just taken over as chief pilot shortly before that accident. Matter of fact, I just moved into a house in Oregon June 28th, and like a few a little over a month later, they, they had that accident. So from there, things kind of went downhill. So I was looking, waiting for a job at uh, Erickson to open up. And uh, when one opened up, Dave Barnett, the chief pilot over there, called me up. And so then I I went over to Erickson, and, uh, and my house happened to be only two miles. I lived only two miles from uh, Erickson's headquarters here and their operational headquarters in Midford, Oregon, Central Point. So it was quite handy, actually. So, I'll have to track someone uh, from the, the company down and talk about Erickson, but uh, do they just have the sky cranes, or do they have anything else? Well, when I was with them, they pretty much just had sky cranes. But now, since I left them, They've acquired a company in Brazil, and they acquired Evergreen, so they have many. I think they have 61s now and some mediums. Um, but when I worked for them, they were pretty much just E-model and F-model cranes is all they had. And what was the transition like for that, doing the um, crossing over to the sky crane? What was the training involved? Well, you know, flying long line into mission, it doesn't change, really, the aircraft. It's just flying an aircraft. Um, it's just getting used to the systems. So we go through a week ground school uh, at Erickson. I hired on as a captain and then got typed right away because of all my heavy experience. And um, once I got typed as a captain, then I just started firefighting and um, building time in crane. But, you know, the training was good. Uh, we spent, like I said, a whole week training, and then we'd go out and fly the aircraft. We'd do sea snorkel. And we would do uh, tank work. And then um, I hadn't flown a long line in about five years or four years. And they uh, asked me to go to Peru and fly some uh, precision work down there for an oil company support. So I told them I would. So there are four of us that they wanted to do that. And so they called us up and said, come on into Medford and we'll uh, get you each a couple hours in the aircraft to remember how to fly long lines. So I think we all took about they gave us each two hours of refresher, but we only flew like 36 minutes, and we're like, oh, yeah, we remember how to do this. Because, uh, you know, by that time, I probably had eight or 9,000 hours of long line time, so it didn't take long for it to come back. Yeah, for sure. And uh, excuse me, how do they actually get them around the, the world? Do they pack them up in a, in a jumbo and fly them down to Peru, or how do they shift them from uh, California down actually, to... Actually, uh, they asked me to fly the aircraft down to Peru, I suggested they put it on a boat and ship it down. You know, I've done a lot of work overseas, and but for some reason they wanted us to fly it down. So I went down to San Diego and picked it up, and I flew it down to uh, Piera, Peru. It should have took me six days, but the, it took me 19 days. I had a lot of difficulties. Um, had no maps. I had uh, a Garmin GPS on the dash and an old Apollo GPS or on the dash, an old GPS in the dash and uh i only had maps from mexico but they were from 2006 and this was i think 2011 remember right and so they were five years old and then once we got down past mexico i had no more maps 
because uh, they just didn't exist. So I bought bought a few JIP charts for low and route charts and um, carried it all the way down there. It's pretty interesting. We had a lot of weather, a lot of weather issues. We we hired a company which has a agents out of Texas and they hire agents wherever we would stop for fuel and they would we would land at an airport and they would meet us and have all our fuel arranged, hand us a weather brief and um, also get us some lunch and then we'd fill it back up and we'd take off and go again as far as we could go. We had uh, two cargo boxes and an external fuel tank so I had four hours of fuel as the farthest I could go. Uh, that model crane burns about 550 to 560 gallons of fuel an hour, so you don't get very far. And um, you can watch those fuel gauges go down. But I know as long as I kept the ocean on the right side of the aircraft, I was in good shape <laughs> headed enough. down down there. And um, yeah, we we spent some time in um, oh, Panama City. We got stuck for four or five days due to weather. Um, got the aircraft searched many times by the different armies and police and drug enforcement people. In Costa Rica, somebody shot us through the rotor systems with 30 cows and spent a night in a place called La Fortuna, Costa Rica, 30 miles from San Jose. And when the weather cleared in the morning, we took off. And of course, we had to go get try and find the diesel fuel because we didn't have enough fuel anymore. So we landed this little strip and found a guy with a, a tank and and uh, I was a pickup. Our mechanics went down. We bought diesel fuel and put it in a crane enough to get us to San Jose. And so we took off the next day. And when we landed at a 30, 30 mile flight, we were looking at the blades and someone had shot us through the rotor system. And we repaired them. The mechanics did a repair on them. And then we left there and continued on. And we got stuck in Ecuador. Uh, we had to land unexpectedly due to weather in a place we hadn't told them we were going to land, so we had no customs on immigration, and that caused quite a stir. And then we had to buy uh, 600 gallons of fuel from them, and uh, it was quite the mess. And then we finally got down to Pira, Peru, and then I took a flight, commercial flight from there back to Lima, and then went home. <laughs> and how did they get so it, it back? Did they, did they fly uh, back, or did they, they take your advice and put it on a ship to get it back home? Oh, no, it's still down there working that aircraft. Okay, no worries. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, I flew commercial back, and then I, I think I was home a couple weeks and went back down to start the job down there. But, yeah, we had, the only way we could get weather and route was we had a computer, a laptop that had a cellular a modem in it, and um, somebody back, so it worked great, and then when we got to the end of Mexico, somebody back in the IT department at Ericsson saw that there was quite a bill being put on by uh, overseas international cellular service. And I guess nobody told the IT, so the IT department turned it off on us. So then we had no in-route weather reporting at all. <laughs> and they told us to get it back in 24 to 48 hours, and we never got it back the whole trip. So it was a lot of uh, flying by the seat of our pants and, uh, you know, relying on our GPS and, you know, just making phone calls and a lot of coordination, but we cut there. How fast is the um, Skycrane cruise at? Um, they vary uh, anywhere between 100, 105 knots to 115 knots, depending on the model. So they're not a very fast aircraft. Uh, as the old saying, you've never been lost until you've been lost at, uh, at Mark II, but uh, you could, the helicopter world would almost be the, you know, you've never been lost until you've been lost in uh, Ecuador in a, in a, uh, in a Skycrane. <laughs> yeah. It's a good aircraft. It's a great firefighting machine. Of all the heavy to fly, my favorite is the Chinook. Um, it's just comfortable. It's fast. It's very smooth. And then the, uh, but for firefighting, I prefer a crane with an Ericsson tank on it. That's just a phenomenal machine. The tank has perfect head pressure uh, for the drops. Um, just a phenomenal tool. It's kind of like an old tractor flying a sky crane. It reminds me of where the Chinook is more like a nice fine-tuned complex car, but with a lot of power. Awesome. There's a, there's a guy, or well, I think he's passed, but um, I'm trying to get the, the new guy. He's the, the UK uh, uh, Chinook display pilot because the uh, the Chinook routine that they do looks fantastic. Um, 
So yeah, we'll have to see that one. But uh, yeah, all right, John, we better talk about the um, the forestry service then. So can you, yeah, so basically, can you give us a bit of an idea of your current role there and some of the responsibilities in the, in the current job? Okay, well, I'm what they call, uh, I work for the Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service, and I'm the Region 1 Helicopter Inspector Pilot. So nationally, we have uh, 12 inspector pilots for the Forest Service. We have nine regions. Some regions have two. Um, my region only has one, so I'm primarily, I'm, I work nationally, but my primary responsibility is for all of Montana, all of North Dakota, northern part of South Dakota, and the northern part of Idaho. And uh, so that's the area that I'm, I'm responsible to the vendors, the contractors, to card them and work with them for firefighting operations. I work with them on some contract issues. I go out and to their facilities. Some are big companies, some are small companies. You know, some guy, some people have one helicopter and they got a, it's at their ranch. They have like a 100,000 acre ranch. He has a helicopter and a call when needed contract. So I, I drive out there and I uh, meet them at their ranch and I sit down and I give them the Forest Service fire briefing and then we go fly in their aircraft and I evaluate them on, I don't evaluate them on like FAA items. I only evaluate them on items like uh, special mission use, um, mountain flying, propel, cargo letdown, short haul, bucket operations for firefighting, belly hook operations, cargo operations with a long line, and tank operations. So I go and I, I fly. I, I'm not certifying them anything for the FAA. I'm just flying with them. And, and issuing them a, a force or an interagency card thing that I've flown with them. And uh, I find uh, that they fly these special mission uh, items that we need them to fly, and they can do it safely, and they're, um, and they're, that they're going to go out and not hurt themselves or anybody else. And um, other responsibilities, I work uh, closely with our helicopter operations specialists, and, which is mostly a lot of contracting stuff that he works on. And we work with our, our regional forest aviation officers and all the different forests. And we work any aviation issues they have. We're the subject matter experts for them to come to us. And then I work a lot on the national level. I work on national projects like the short haul program that the Forest Service is starting this year for search and rescue medical evacuation. Uh, that was new this year, and I was on the national team for that. I also card people for heli torch operations uh, and PSD operations for prescribed burns or for firefighting that can use that on also. And uh, nationally, I developed a, a water torch to use instead of a fire torch. So because a fire torch, they have to actually drop gel when I'm doing a check ride. It's basically 55 gallons of napalm hanging right below the helicopter. And a lot of uh, issues have to line up perfectly for that to get accomplished on a prescribed burn. So I came up with the water torch that allows us to expel water, and I can still do the check ride with it, but I have, don't have to go through everything that we would have to go through if we're actually dropping uh, fire gel down on the forest. Actually, that's, that's surprising that, um, yeah, they hadn't done that before. But, yeah, when you when you talk about it and actually say it like that, it sounds completely logical and practical that that's how you'd have it set up for, for the training and for the qualification. Yeah. Absolutely. It's because it's, you know, you want, basically you want to get them going low and slow in the mountains with a heavy load, you know, underneath them. You want to make sure they can handle that. And, you know, to me, it didn't make sense to do that. First time that guy's ever flying heavy, low and slow and have 55 gallons of napalm below them, I didn't think that was always the safest route to go. Um, and a friend of mine mentioned it, the heli torch idea. So I took it and ran with it and I got with the research and development team here uh, in Missoula, Montana, right down the road from my office, and they helped me. Uh, they actually built it for me, and uh, we kind of did it without any funds. <laughs> so, um, and we got it done. We tested it, and we recorded it. I had a vendor fly it, test it, and uh, it went well. And so then I, I wrote up the pilot training standards for it for the, na- the National Interagency PTS and uh, submitted it and got it approved in Washington, D.C. So now we can do that program. It's it's very, very, and it allows people to actually be trained to do it also, besides just doing it for the first time being a check ride. All right, I got a heap of questions for you, John, just about the, um, 
the fire service so I can get my sort of head around it. So does the fire service actually have its own helicopters and pilots or is everything uh, contracted out? Uh, how's that set up? Well, Do you actually have your own internal fleet? Well, how it works, um, there's only, like I said, only 12 of us that are helicopter pilots for the Forest Service. And we don't work operationally because um, there is a few things we do, a few uh, aerial ignition, PSD missions down in the southeast we'll do. We have our own Bell uh, 206B3 that we'll use down there, and sometimes we'll take it up to Alaska to do uh, some repeater missions. But for uh, 99% of the time, we don't do any operational flying except for that because anything flying we do could be seen as competing with the vendors, the contractors. And so we don't want to do that. And so uh, it's better for us to hire them. They're the ones that maintain the proficiency. You know, even though I may have a lot of time and experience, you know, I don't I don't get to go out and fly every day anymore. I average, you know, maybe 40 to 80 hours a year of flight time. Um, so I'm not there proficiently anymore um, where I, I used to be comfortable at doing that stuff. So the contractors, they are, that's what they do for a living. And so uh, it makes sense to hire them and we don't compete against them. So we also have fixed-wing pilots, and the Forest Service has a lot more fixed-wing aircraft that they lease and operate for lead planes and jumper planes, but um, that's a whole different uh, whole different animal than, than what we do. So basically, the and we also have a couple of Cobra helicopters in California that the uh, helicopter inspector pilots for the Forest Service will fly that on a few missions, but I don't get involved with that too much down here, Region 5, California area. Um, those guys pretty much handle that primarily down there. It's their program. Yeah, I love, so I love the fact. I'm trying to think of how they'd uh, how they slipped that one initially and say, look, here's our idea. We'll go get these uh, cobras and uh, we'll go fly around in a cobra and, and tell you where the fire is. Because <laughs> yeah. I can't think of, uh, you know, obviously maybe the, the surplus stock or something, but... Uh, uh, I'm just trying to imagine how you go about selling the idea. I'm sorry, I couldn't quite hear that. Oh, that's right. I was just trying to think about how the first person would go and sell the idea of, of using a Cobra versus, uh, versus something else. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a really good platform. They actually they go up and they, they, uh, they can send live feed of the fire down to a trailer. So the incident commander of the fire can actually see. He can look at the actual fire, what it's doing in real time. And... Uh, they can do maps and things like that. So they're giving them real-time information, which which is real handy for the incident commanders on some of those fires that get real big and run real fast and do a lot of damage in California. All right, you talked, uh, John, a couple of times about um, you know carding pilots and things like that. So can you talk about that um, that process? I guess is there a minimum hours before you can get um, the car? And is there an official name for it? And you know, I often hear about folks will go and need to go do mountain flying course before they can uh, work for the uh, the forestry service. Is that is there a minimum requirements? No, but the requirements basically are um, to fly for the forest service to, as a vendor or a contractor. The pilot, and even for me to get hired by the forest service, you got to have fifteen hundred hours of pilot command time. You have to have a hundred hours of flight time in the last twelve months. And you got to have 200 hours of mountain flying time and 50 hours of making model that you can apply. So the, the requirements aren't that high, um, but it's all PIC time, all those requirements. So SIC time doesn't count. And um, you got to have some people are carded, some pilots are carding four different aircraft uh, for the same company. So then they have to have 10 hours in the last 12 months in each making model. Um, and so that 100 hours of pilot and command time, that's uh, in the last 12 months, that's in any type helicopter. That's just pilot and command time in a helicopter. And same with the 1,500 hours. It's just for make and model, it comes down to 50 hours of PIC time. So it kind of gives you a leeway and it allows guys to build time. And we also have um, we're a training program where we allow type 1, the heavies, and type 2, the medium operators they have a training program that the company wants where they can designate one of their pilots or a couple of the pilots, depending on how many contracts they have, to be a training captain. And then what they do is they can put, like if a guy came from, he's been carded for years in, in a, a jet ranger, and then he goes to a company that flies mediums, he needs to get that 50 hours of mediums. And then we will allow them 
to go ahead and become a trainee, and they can build their time and start flying on fires with that training captain on the fire, flying with them, training them. And then once they, they get the proper amount of time, then uh, they'll let us know, and then we'll come out and give them a uh, check ride for their special mission use and add the uh, medium to their con- to their card. And it's an interagency helicopter pilot card, so it's good for all federal uh, and state operations. Okay, excellent. So once someone's done with you there in uh, in Montana, then they could be you know anywhere else in the in the U.S. and and be ticked to have the tick in the box. Right. So I, if I record somebody here in Montana, they can go anywhere in the United States on a federal or state contract that the interagency partners with us and fly. All right, back on the firefighting side, I've seen a couple of articles um, sort of lamenting the the amount of budget that actually goes into the, the helicopter uh, firefighting that it actually then you know, eats into preventative type measures. I don't know. Have you seen any sort of? Is it, do you see the budget pressure at the at the front line, and and what are some of the other tasks that you use helicopters for outside of fires inside the inside the forestry service? So I kind of got some of that. So the budget part, like, have we seen budget issues with us? Yeah. So there's a couple of articles. Like, there's a figure there. You know, forty two percent of the um, forestry service budget goes into fighting fires, and a lot of that is spent on on helicopters. So it's obviously quite an expensive thing at the expense of, I guess, prevention programs. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, um, quite a bit of the budget does go. I don't know if it's quite 42%. I'm not, I'm not quite sure on that number, but a lot of it does go to the aviation. That may be a, the total aviation number, but helicopters do the majority of the flying for the Forest Service. Um, we fly more hours than, um, than any, all the other aircraft out there, the fixed wing or even the... the um, air tankers and all that, the seats. The helicopters do pretty much most of the operations in the flying um, because they're so versatile and use, you know, we can use them for anything. Um, and so budget-wise, though, I, I, you know, I don't see a lot happening with that. Our budget's kind of been stagnant the last couple of years. We haven't really had an increase in it, but our contracts, you know, haven't really changed any. We've got new contract cycles coming up, but we're pretty much maintaining the same level of aircraft. Uh, and contracts, that seems to be a good fit. And, you know, a lot of that, you know, people see we pay a lot of money for some helicopters to sit, and those they're sitting because they're on IA initial attack reasons. It's like having a fire engine in the uh, firehouse, you know. Uh, so when the house gets on fire, you send the fire engine. It's kind of the same concept. And that's a lot what our exclusive use contracts are used for. And then when we have too much work that exclusive use uh, can't handle it. That's when we call our call the needed contract, which are aircraft that could be out logging or doing construction jobs or other jobs. And we call up those companies and say, hey, we have a fire. Do you have an aircraft available? Come fight fire. And then they'll go ahead and send it. So um, last year was not a very busy fire season, so we didn't have a lot of call when needed use. Um, we had, you know, we used all our exclusive use primarily. And, um, so I, I don't see a lot of that changing right now. Uh, as far as jobs that we do outside of firefighting, you know, there's uh, for helicopters. There's they use them for snow surveys quite a bit in the winter time to go right up on the mountain and see how deep the snow is. We'll use vendors for that, and we'll do uh, changing batteries out on repeaters. We'll fly radio techs up to do that, and um, we do sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes we'll do animal surveys with helicopters. Most of the time they use airplanes for that. And then uh, a lot of times, like when I worked at Columbia, we did a lot of stream enhancement jobs. So what that is, is uh, they have a a stream and they want to increase the fish habitat. So what they do is we hire a contractor to come out their helicopter and fly boulders and fly trees and root wads and stumps and put them. There's a biologist out there and we fly and put them where they want them to help build fish habitat. And so those are some of the other other jobs that helicopters do. Yeah, excellent. Because uh, I can imagine there's just, you know, little jobs all over the place. And, yeah, you'd have, given the, the size of the parks and the area you're covering, uh, be the way to go. So, John, a lot of your work then when you're going out is almost like a risk management thing. You're basically ensuring that there's a, a standard sort of skill level in the, um, in the contractor fleet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you said you're doing, you know, sort of 60 to 80 hours a year. 
What sort of machines are you flying in that period? What sort of folks are locally there with you? What what are they using on contracts? Oh, okay. I use um so any given day on contracts, um we have vendors L threes, L fours, um, A stars, you know, the B two, B three, B three E. Uh we have Hueys, uh UH1H restricted, we have uh two oh fives, um two oh five plus pluses, two twelves. Uh, we'll also have um, those are all mostly light to mediums, and then we'll do K Maxes, BB 107s, the BB 234 Chinooks, both cranes, military style cranes that some of the other companies fly, and 61s. So any given day, sometimes like uh, next month, I'm going to a company that has uh, 61s, UH1s, 212s, and Chinook. So I'll go out there in in one day. I could get in all four different of those aircraft and uh, give check rides. That's so it, it varies. That's what I and the things I like about the job. You know, I can jump in many different helicopters in one day or in several days and, and get the experience and, and fly with these guys. And it's kind of a joy. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, if folks are listening and they're they're trying to, to break into that sort of market as a uh, as a younger pilot or as a newer pilot, have you got any tips on on where to start and, and how to to get a foot in the door? Yeah, you know, to get in, if you just gotta get in and, and get your obviously get your resumes in, and you're more they're more remarkable to have at least fifteen hundred hours of pilot command time. It's not a mandatory thing, but it allows the the company to use them right away without a lot of expense. But um, for the guys that had the five and 600 hours, you know, for them to get on in, as a co-pilot somewhere with some of your larger companies, you know, it's, it's kind of like, in a way, it's paying your dues. You don't get paid that great, but it's a lot better than it used to be. It used to be, um, you know, in the logging world, your co-pilot, you'd tell them to sit on his hands and don't touch nothing. And uh, or that they were bird strike protection for the flight control closet. But those days are long gone. I don't see that happening in the industry anymore. I see the co-pilots becoming a lot more uh, entwined with the crew and becoming an actual crew member, which is nice. It's helped build a network core. And for them, them guys to get in these companies and uh, start knocking on doors and, and send out a lot of resumes and just let them know you're willing to... Sometimes it takes driving a fuel truck uh, for a year before they let you get in the cockpit. Sometimes uh, some young pilots have A&P licenses, so sometimes to get your foot in the door, you may have to, you know, work to turn wrenches for a year, and before you can get into the cockpit. And um, you know, when they're working for these companies, if you know they want to get some ferry time, that's a great time for them to say, hey, can I jump in with the other pilot and get some ferry time and help build time? And you know, you're building a report with that other pilot who reports to management, and that helps. And a lot of things I see, too, is, you know, the guys that, that get to move up and get a lot more responsibility, the guys that really have good work ethics. You know, when they get out there, you clean your aircraft, you do the windows, you know, you help the mechanics out, always be willing to help out. You know, it's the guys that seem to just sit around and watch other people work. They tend not to go very far, but it's the guys that are motivated and just get out there and start doing whatever you can do to help. You know, you see a mechanic out there trying to wrenches and it's hot bring a bottle of water, see what you can do to help it. Um, those kind of things show motivation. And um, and that gets reported up the chain. People be surprised how much that gets reported. And um, that helps people get moving along in their career. You know, it's just the guys that sit around and play on their iPads all day. That, that doesn't go over very well. So those are some of the things I can think off off the top of my head that, you know, that really make an impression on management, you want to you want to make that impression on them that you're willing to work for them because you know a lot of people go out there on fires and they sit around and they don't do anything. They, if the flight aircraft isn't flying, they'll go pre-flight, they do a load count, performance planning, and then they'll go sit. Um, I used to always take my co-pilot out after we did the pre-flight. And we went for a morning brief. Then we'd sit down in the aircraft and we'd go do one hour of professional development. My boss was paying me to be out there all day. If I wasn't flying, the co-pilot, if, if I had a bad co-pilot, that was a direct reflection upon myself because I'm supposed to be his mentor and trainer. So then I would take him and we'd do one-hour professional development. We'd go over systems, cockpit procedures, emergency procedures, pre-flight. We'd go over contract, paperwork, whatever it took to build him up 
and help him, you know, feel the part of the team. And, but, you know, the co-pilot's also got to give back. Right? He's got to be willing and want to do that and show motivation. If, if they're not willing to show that motivation, it's harder to get the captain to want to spend time with them and help them. So it's a two-way street. That's awesome. That's um, some really good advice. Uh, and, and John, what about on the flying side? I don't know, I'll put you on the spot here, but is there something you've picked up along your flying career, you know, a technique or just an attitude that, um, you know, you wish you could have picked up earlier or, you know, you'd pass on to, on to your kids if they became uh, pilots or air crew? Yeah, there's a few things. You know, um, I always like to tell guys when you're flying a helicopter, if you're sitting there fat, dumb, and happy, you're missing something. As a, as a helicopter pilot, risk management is a big part of our, our job, and people don't even realize it, but you're doing it all the time as a, as a helicopter pilot because we're always down low, and there's always you're always identifying risk. You're looking at the risk. You're deciding what to do. You're mitigating it, and you're always coming up with a plan B. You always have that plan B. You always, always leave a way out, uh, especially operating on fires. Guys get boxed in the canyons. They get in the smoke. Always have a plan. And don't be afraid to stop yeah, at any time. Um, you know, I always tell the guys, if you're out there flying and you don't feel comfortable, stop what you're doing, go back, talk about it, call me, I'll back you up on it any day. If you if the hair on your neck stands up or you're just not comfortable, don't push it. It's the guys that push their limits. Those are the guys that, that end up dying. Um, you know, you got to know your limits and fly up to your limits. But if you exceed them, you're going to end up hurting yourself or somebody. And another big thing is patience. I see guys, especially long line. Um, you know, I was a production long line pilot, and I was also a precision long line pilot. And it's hard sometimes to shift gears. But the people got to remember: don't don't get so don't think they have to go so fast and get the job done quickly. You know, take your time, think it through. Always have, before you get in that cockpit, if you're going out for a mission, already have that mission planned in your head. So you have a plan, and then that way you're not thinking of something while you're flying. You know, it's important to think that whole flight through before you ever get in a cockpit. That planning is very important. And um, I like to impress that upon guys. You know, before I do lift jobs or before, you know, I do certain things, uh, firefighting and stuff, I'd look at the map. I kind of had an idea where I was going. I knew what I was going to do. I knew if things had gotten certain conditions or these parameters were exceeded and we were done and we were going to leave that area. And so, you know, don't be afraid to say no and don't push your limits and relax, enjoy it, and be patient. Fantastic. Look, John, thank you so much for that. There's so much um, that you need to share and lots of things, you know, even just the insights about the, the logging, living and and those last bits and pieces that uh, you know I wouldn't normally come across. So, and I'm sure folks listening is exactly the same boat. So, thank you for, for having time to to share some of that with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. How good was that? Imagine being part of that sky crane trip. You know, 19 days of trekking down from North America to Peru in a machine that big and having to deal with all those complications that came up along the way. It's going to be something you're going to remember. And Montana sounds like somewhere to put on the, a bucket list of places to visit to, as far as, you know, the, the scenery and all the bits and pieces there. And as most folks overseas might know, here in Australia, you know, we obviously have kangaroos in the, the main streets of most towns and cities, but having elks... You know, stroll past your house that would be something very very different so thanks to our sponsors for this episode trainmorepilots.com where you can pick up some help on marketing your aviation business have you left a, a itunes review yet look a big thank you for those that have and an admission on my part i've only just worked out how to see the reviews from other countries because itunes actually keeps every country separate so Look, while you're there, and uh, it'd be awesome if you leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed already, then it's, it's a really easy way to get the episodes uh, pushed out to you from iTunes. And again, looking obviously do the same thing through Stitcher as well. And if you've got some value out of the episodes, then make sure to pay it forward and share the show with people you think might uh, benefit from it also. We're still taking signups for worldhelicopterday.com. Uh, if you want your open day in August listed on the international site, then get your details uh, submitted over there. Okay, so what is coming up in future episodes? 
we should be hearing from Jane about uh, flying tourist stops in Fiji up next. And if you have questions about that, then, then you know, send them through and I'll put them to Jane and see if we can get them answered on that interview. After that, though, look, I've been flat out with uh, a couple of projects here lately, so I actually need to sit down and lock in a, a few more interviews um, to follow up from that. There was a question from Shane during the week asking about when the, the Dennis Kenyon webinar recording will be available. And look, hopefully very, very soon. I'm uh, <laughs> almost done, and I'll let people know when you can uh, grab that. Right, do you remember back at the top of the show, we had the, the question of the week, and that was, you know, how long was that ground trap, or the, the ground questionnaire, and, and how long was the, the flying component of your uh, CPL flight test? So hit up on Facebook or Twitter with those answers, and I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, what comes back there. That's it for this episode, and I will catch up with you next time. Cheers. Cheers.